Chapter Thirteen of the House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. The Tidal Wave. Ten years later, one mild spring afternoon, the Alstons, father and son, were walking slowly in the English garden in Munich. They came to the rocks that overlook the impetuous stream diverted from the Isar that loses none of the energy of the parent river, and sat down under the trees, idly watching the ducks that dared to come to the very edge of the little fall, and then went about to be swept over it, spread their wings triumphantly, and fly to safety. "'Canny creatures,' said Dr. Alston. "'How strange that they can appreciate a risk and get fun out of it!' "'To think also,' replied Robert, "'of their cool calculation of those wings as an asset when the critical moment comes.' Then, after a moment, he added, half seriously, half smilingly, "'Poor old Dad! You've been fearful sometimes that I mightn't find mine in time, nicht wahr?' But here we are today, safe and sound. Yes, here we are, replied his father, with an involuntary sigh of happiness and relief, such as a long storm-beaten mariner might utter as his feet touched the solid earth of the home shore. Their eyes met in an understanding glance full of mutual affection and good comradeship. Dr. Alston had been infinitely patient with his lad, and had held him by a long, not too taut rope of love and sympathy, waiting for him to find himself. Robert Alston had too many aptitudes and talents to discover himself easily, but through all the years between the university days and the present, his father had been wise, calm, and congenial enough to preserve the invaluable post of chum, confidant, and friend. Robert's experiments with life had been numerous and varied, he was a vital, magnetic, generous, enthusiastic fellow, with a nature both practical and idealistic, sensitive to color and music, but with capacity for hard work, equaled by his ability to fling care to the four winds. Wild oats of the baser sort did not appeal to his innate fineness and self-respect, but his mind was so many-sided, and he touched life responsively at so many points, that he wanted to rush down any one of a dozen different and equally alluring highways to some distant and hazy goal. Poverty would have soon forced him to a decision, but a large fortune gave time for experience. At last there came a day under the spell of a long and leisurely tour in Italy that he became sure that the world of art was calling for the consecration of his ideals and energies. Dr. Alston stood by while a studio was fitted up in Florence, talked, ate, walked, and smoked the Italian Renaissance, leaned for hours over the rampart on the hill of San Miniato on starlit nights, when the archangel's tent and Giotto's tower of spiritualized marble seemed to guard the lily of the Arno. Later, not very much later, he was present at the auction of easels, tapestries, old armor, a convent altar, and other properties which sale brought the episode to a close. Next came the era of music. Robert had played passably well on the piano for many years, and had exercised a pleasing baritone in the college glee club and on social occasions. 
Now he threw himself heart and soul into vocal and instrumental lessons with the most noted instructors on the continent. He bought the lives of all the famous composers and singers, apotheosized Beethoven, fought tooth and nail for Richard Wagner, let his hair grow over the collar of his velveteen jacket, patronized bohemian cafes, and composed a sonata in B minor. It was during this last creative obsession that Dr. Alston's endurances became acutely painful. Robert was distrait, frowned much, lost his sense of the ludicrous, hummed constantly, did finger exercises on the tablecloth and backs of chairs, and was deaf to questions. The sonata died a natural death, and Robert emerged from his dream of distinction. This was in Paris. Dr. Alston took breath, enjoyed the old Robert once more, alert, witty, genial, but with a better command of voice and a more brilliant technique than when the fad struck him. Then came a fatal day, when Robert wrote a magazine story that was accepted, promptly printed, and paid for handsomely. That settled it forevermore. Literature! Now came the era of ink. A study in Berlin, shelves splendid with reference books in calf and Morocco, a typewriting machine, various styles of fountain pens, reams of snowy paper, a bust of Goethe, Balzac, Shakespeare, and a desk so handsome and convenient that just to own it would seem to induce the spark from heaven to fall on its possessor. Robert's next story came back six times. Dr. Alston could see the end and took courage. Robert began a novel, but there seemed to be no plot in the universe left for him to handle. The fire of genius leaped, flickered, and went out. There was a private sale, and tickets purchased for Tibet. This was in Berlin. These fervent episodes were only interludes in travel, for the Alstons went everywhere. Year after year, Dr. Alston hoped that his son would see in his uncommon endowment of wealth, leisure, culture, and social station a vast opportunity to respond to the cry of tortured, burdened, ignorant humanity. It was for this that he was a willing exile in nearly every land under the sun. When the young fellow began to observe political and social conditions, comparing country with country, race with race, with a fresh kindling interest, his father saw a beam of hope. But then followed the most trying period of all. Robert became fascinated with rationalistic German philosophy and read greedily until he could argue glibly against the fundamental tenets of the Christian religion and seemed to throw overboard all that his fathers had held sacred and to set his face like a flint. But one day, on a side trip in Africa, their way brought them to a village where they were put up overnight by an American missionary and his wife, two radiant souls dwelling among Negroes, who did not talk to their guests about their love for the Christ and their faith in him, but who glowed with it and triumphed in it, two university graduates pouring out love unstinted to these uncivilized and ignorant ones, teaching them to work with their hands, to read, to be clean, to know the true God. They showed the Alstons the carpenter shop, the schoolhouse, the little chapel, and that night there was a very simple service, 
and in that service young Alston, who had listened unmoved to eloquent presentations of Christianity from the most dominating pulpits of the world, heard under that thatched roof the cry of the other man, which is the call of God. When they left the next day, the Alstons told the missionaries that they would be responsible for the erection of the small hospital so much needed, and so, blessing and trebly blessed, they went on their way. Robert was now fired with eagerness to get to work. They had not left Cape Town before that work had begun to take shape, and many a mile the father and son traversed on the wide decks of the steamer during the long voyage northward. Robert would study social economy and systematized applied philanthropy, the first in the universities, the second in the great cities. He would also master the details of the woolen business from the sheep to the marketable goods. Then he would be ready to build a great mill in Kent and introduce the most improved methods of manufacture and the most favorable conditions for the employees. All this would take years, and it did. On this afternoon in Munich, most of the patient preparatory work lay behind Robert. He was nearly thirty years old. In June, the lectures in the University of Munich would be finished. There would be a walking trip in the Tyrol, and then the return to Waverley Ridge, the opening of the old house, and a winter of study of plans, ways, and means. Now, as the two sat quietly on the rocks, the subject of the home-going came uppermost. Robert had not been in the United States for several years, but Dr. Alston had made an annual trip to look after their business interests and to keep an eye on the manor house. "'Are you quite sure, Dad?' asked Robert with solicitude, "'that it is not going to be hard for you to open up the house and live there with me?' "'I can't say it will not be, Bob, but my joy in you has softened the old, old sorrow over the loss of your dear mother.' One thing would comfort me immeasurably, and that would be to see you wedded to a woman in every sense your mate, and to hear your children's feet on the stairs, your children's voices in the halls. Robert's so-called love affairs had partaken of the variety and number of his other essays at finding himself. These had not been the least of Dr. Alston's troubles. The athletic girl, the musical girl, the B.A. girl, the butterfly, the trained nurse, and the settlement worker had marked various stages of Robert's history. He had never been engaged since he was a senior in high school, but he had often been perilously near it, and Dr. Alston's cure had always been the profoundest interest in then railroad and steamer tickets. Tickets to Sydney, to the South Sea Islands, to the land of the midnight sun, anywhere so long as it was far enough away. Twice the long journeys themselves had developed cases of propinquity that had to be dealt with, with a tact and diplomacy on the father's part that would have sufficed to settle a delicate international dispute with brilliant success. For two or three years now Robert had been too busy to care for girls, and had reached the age of deliberation, and knowing that he would be quite miserable now with any one of the girls who had caught his fancy in the past, he naturally feared that one whom he might choose at thirty would not suit him at forty, and it becomes so hypercritical that Dr. Alston began to apprehend an increasing hesitation which might finally become a fixed determination to go on by himself. The subject was rarely mentioned now between them, and today the father spoke with such deep feeling that Robert was unwontedly touched, 
and replied without his usual attempt to fence. Dad, I hope for your sake, at least, that your dreams will come true, but the woman whom I marry is not coming to me along the usual lines of long acquaintance and a gradually increasing sense of my need of her and fondness for her. She must come as a swift, sudden, resistless, uplifting inspiration, not a summer dawn before the sunrise. I want to be taken off guard as by a tidal wave, swept from my feet, submerged, blinded, half-drowned, borne up to safety and peace, to come to my calm self with my head in her lap and the consciousness of infinite completion, a perfect comradeship for spirit, mind, and body. His eyes grew bright as he talked, clasping one knee with both hands and looking straight ahead. Dr. Alston smiled somewhat sadly and said, "'You're not asking much of the gods, are you, Bob?' "'That remains to be seen,' Robert answered. Then drawing out his watch, he said, "'It is only an hour before the performance. There are no reserved seats, you know.' They rose simultaneously and retraced their steps to the entrance, hailed a taxi, and were soon speeding down the beautiful Prinzregatenstrasse. Just ahead of them, across the Isar, the peace angel blazed in the late sunshine on the top of her lofty monument, one of Munich's numerous beautiful fountains playing at the base of the shaft. They did not cross the massive bridge with its colossal sculptures, but turned, keeping along the border of the river. Shortly, they arrived at the great Protestant church of St. Luke, dismissed the chauffeur, and made their way to seats in the middle of the vast auditorium. It was the week before Holy Week, and a musical society were to render Bach's The Passion According to St. Matthew. The church was almost ugly in its bareness. There was absolutely no appeal to the senses. The mighty sword of the Reformation, ruthlessly divorcing art from religion, failed to recognize the need of the human heart for beauty, and that, in his temple, everything saith glory. How true it is that spirituality cannot be forced, remarked Dr. Alston, looking about. Taking away beauty to promote spirituality has often worked to make people narrow, sordid, intolerant, and intolerable, added Robert, as his father paused, his eyes caught by a face amid the throng of people who were crowding into the church. Bob, said he, I believe there is Mrs. Gilbert of Waverly Ridge. Yes, it is she. Don't you see that fine, regal-looking woman in grey? Snow-white hair, large, dark eyes, splendid set of the head on her shoulders. I've hardly seen her for years, and when I did see her at the ridge a long time ago, she could not see me because of some trouble with her eyes. They seem to be all right now, as she is reading the program. When we have been at the ridge, it has only been for a day— and she is abroad a good share of the time. We must speak with her after the oratorio. The organ and the singers were in the high gallery behind the congregation. The word audience hardly seems appropriate to this occasion, for to most people the listening is less a critical attention to the rendition of an immortal work of genius than an act of profound worship. The great organ was supplemented by an orchestra of sympathetic strings. Come, ye daughters, sang the chorus, come, share my anguish, see him, the bridegroom, a lamb is he. 
this to a marvellous sobbing accompaniment that sobs on during the slow, sustained notes of the soprano, the latter maintaining its distinct message above the agitation of the first chorus, and the vehement questioning, whom, how, what, of the insistent second chorus, and addresses the suffering Saviour. O Lamb of God, most holy, the bitter cross undergoing, the sins of man thou art bearing, else would we be despairing. The favorite part of the Alstons throughout the entire work was the alto solos, both men being especially fond of the lower tones in a woman's voice. Today they awaited the first alto solo with much anticipation, and when the recitative, O Blessed Savior, and the following aria, Grief and Pain, were given with exquisite tone and artistic finish, but with absolute lack of warmth and real tenderness, the two men exchanged a look of disappointment, and not even the majestic chorale, the sorrows thou art bearing, nor the wonderful tenor solo, I would beside my lord be watching, compensated them. Later, borne along in the surges of the mighty turmoil of the chorus, Behold, my Saviour now is taken. They forgot all else but the fierce remonstrance of the Master's followers. Have lightnings and thunders in clouds disappeared, and the savage impetus of the mob bent on its bloody desire? During the pause after the first part, Robert said in an undertone to his father, I am positively rebellious about that alto singer. She is made of ice. She did not forget herself nor her art for one instant. There is nothing so tender in the whole work as that number 61, if my tears be unavailing, and I would almost rather forfeit the whole of the second part than to hear that heartless creature sing that solo. I feel as you do, replied Dr. Alston. Still, we cannot afford to miss the other numbers. Let us stay. They little knew that even as they talked, the singer in question was being rapidly rushed in a taxi to meet a dinner engagement, and that another young lady had taken the vacant seat in the quartet. Part second opens with the alto solo, Ah, now is my Saviour gone. Robert had folded his arms, sitting very erect and frowning somewhat, to brace himself for the ordeal. But what is this? What magical change had come over that flawless, smooth, well-rounded voice? Those five opening measures on the one syllable. Ah, the one-tone F-sharp, with the exquisite delicacy of the accompaniment as its only relief, had become a deep well of adoring love. Robert caught his breath. The voice went on. Ah, now is my Savior gone. Here was art in its perfection, but here was also a passionate appreciation, a self-forgetful devotion that throbbed in every note. The chorus intervened with their interrogation, and then again that thrilling, mellow, appealing voice. Is it possible? Is it possible? Robert almost resented the necessary measures of the chorus. He was impatient for that soul cry at the end of the number, Soon it came, every note a tear. Ah, how shall I find an answer, when my anxious soul shall ask me? Ah, where is my Saviour gone? People were wiping their eyes and cheeks freely and unashamed. Robert clutched his coat sleeves and felt the pressure of his father's arm on his side, but did not look at him nor unfold his arms. 
One tenor solo after another, a magnificent chorale, and a mighty chorus fell unheeded on his ears. He only knew that they were making way for number 48, the alto aria. Have mercy, Lord, on me. At last it came, and the woman on his left was shaken with silent weeping. As the voice ceased, it seemed to Robert that he must cry aloud in the intensity of his emotion. Still he sat like a statue till number 61 was reached. If my tears be unavailing, take the very heart of me. Oh, the yearning sweetness, the absolute surrender in that voice! He felt his father turn slightly to meet his glance, but he could not respond. One of life's rapturous experiences had taken possession of him. He would have been glad to rush out of the church, but he could not crowd by the people and disturb their enjoyment. He sat until the last word had died away in peace. Dr. Alston turned at once to him. "'Gloriously given,' he said enthusiastically. "'Why, Bob, are you ill? You're as white as a ghost.' "'Not ill at all,' answered Robert, avoiding his eyes. "'But let's get out as soon as possible.' "'I had thought to intercept Mrs. Gilbert,' said the doctor. "'She was a dear friend of your mother in her girlhood.' "'All right, Dad, do so by all means, but please excuse me this time. "'I'll be around to the hotel shortly.' "'Mrs. Gilbert had remained standing in her place as if waiting for someone. "'Dr. Alston also stood until the streams of people had dwindled into a few stragglers. "'Mrs. Gilbert caught his eye, recognized him, bowed cordially, "'and moved to meet him as she saw him start in her direction. "'They clasped hands gladly.' "'Dr. Alston,' she said, "'how delightful to meet you here. "'How well you are looking, Mrs. Gilbert.' "'Yes, I am well, and enjoying a new lease of life. "'I doubt if anyone really appreciates this beautiful world "'unless, like myself, the eyes have been bandaged for months. "'I was cured several years ago, "'but have never become used to the joy and gratitude.' A tall, slender girl with a lovely face and graceful manner came up to Mrs. Gilbert just then. Her eyes were shining, as with some unusual excitement. "'Dr. Alston,' said Mrs. Gilbert, "'my adopted niece, Miss Avery, is with me here. I want you to know each other.' "'Most happy, I assure you,' replied the doctor courteously, bending over the slender white-gloved hand that Doris extended to him. The three passed out together, Dr. Alston waxing eloquent over his pleasure in the oratorio, and especially in the very unusual alto who had surpassed any he had ever heard. The old adage declares that it is never safe to change horses in midstream, but I must say that today the change was altogether for the better. It must have been sudden, as the name of the substitute did not appear on the program. "'No, it was all prearranged, I understand,' answered Doris. "'But the second singer is an American girl, "'and there were reasons why she did not wish to have her name appear.' "'Do you know her?' "'Aunt Alice knows her,' replied Doris. "'Is Robert here?' asked Mrs. Gilbert, deftly turning the subject. "'Oh, yes, Bob is finishing at the university in good shape. "'He is almost ready now to get to work at home.' "'And you will return to the ridge to live and to open up the dear old house?' "'Yes, Alice.' "'I am glad, Tom. 
I'm sure that Anne would have wished it. No, thank you, we don't require a taxi. It is only a pleasant walk to our hotel. The Four Seasons, you know. Well, we're at the Bayerischer Hof, so if you have no objection, I will walk on with you. One really is in danger of not getting enough exercise where autos are so numerous and so reasonable. We are planning a pedestrian tour in the Tyrol in August, said Mrs. Kilbert. Why, so are we, replied Dr. Alston. Can't we make it a party? It will be the last trip Bob and I will have together over here for a long time to come. We sail for home the first of October. Well, come and call on us, you and Robert, and we will talk it over. When Mrs. Gilbert and Doris were alone in their sitting-room, the former said, My dear, you sang like an angel. It was very hard for me not to tell Dr. Alston. I came very near it, child. But please do keep it a while yet, Aunt Alice. You know we agreed that nobody should know about my voice until we get back to the ridge. I do love surprises. Robert had left the church, flung himself into the first automobile he could get, and had bidden the chauffeur drive anywhere out into the country. The machine brought up at the Lake of Starnberg. Robert bethought him of his father, telephoned to the hotel that he would be in later, sat down at a little corner table in a cafe, and faced the situation. He was astonished, perplexed, dizzy, rebellious, but thrilling nevertheless with the revelation the day had brought. Who was the girl? He imagined her as rather below medium height and with very dark eyes and hair. Perhaps her face might not be beautiful, and he adored beauty, but her soul was so beautiful it must shine through her face, even as it expressed itself in her voice. How could he find her? There had been no name on the program. He would somehow get an interview with the director of the orchestra, a celebrated pianist. He ordered supper because he must, but hardly saw it when it was brought, and ate without thinking anything about it. What if the voice belonged to a married woman, or to a girl whose love had already been gained and pledged? It would mean lifelong loneliness, unsatisfied soul hunger, unattainable ideals to him. He called for his check, consulted a timetable, found he could just catch a train into Munich, and was thankful for a compartment to himself. At 10.30 he walked into the large room at the hotel, which he used as sleeping room and study combined. His father's room opened out of it. Dr. Alston heard him open the corridor door and came to meet him. Dad, said Robert, smiling wanly, it's no use. The tidal wave has come. End of chapter 13 Read by Jennifer Wilson